0: Now, with discipline in the family in mind, would you just follow along with me? Numbers chapter 27 and verse 12. Numbers 27, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. By the way, and those of you who are Wednesday night know this, but I'll just make sure you all are aware that Abarim is a mountain range. It's in Jordan today. It's also in the scriptures called Mount Pisgah. Mount Pisgah. And it has, uh, what's the other name of it? Does anybody remember? It's slipping my mind. The name of the mountain Moses went up to see the land is Nebo. That's right, thank you. Mount Nebo and Mount Pisgah and Mount Abarim are all the same mountain. So if you see it referred to with a different name in scripture, you understand it's the same mountain, one is the name of a mountain range, and then Nebo or Pisgah is the actual highest peak in that mountain range. And so the Lord invites Moses to come up to that place and to see the land that he's going to give to the sons of Israel. Verse 13 says, when you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was, for... In the wilderness of Zen, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before the eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen. Father, again we come before you as your children. And we ask in the teaching and the study of your word this morning that you will help us to understand your discipline. To understand why it is that a father disciplines his children and Father not only to understand in a corporate way as in church discipline but also personally as in the discipline that you give to each of us as sons and daughters we pray that you'll open our eyes to understand your love in greater ways through this discipline we pray that you'll help us to understand the scriptures better we're asking Lord for your Holy Spirit to teach us to bring to mind all that you teach us even after we leave this place that your word might be written on our hearts and in our minds, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do want to say Happy Mother's Day again to the moms, but there is no Mother's Day message. If you were looking for that, you can go online. There are plenty of good Mother's Day messages that have been done over the last week. Chuck Swindoll has one that was a good message about the last seven things that Jesus said on the cross. One of those being, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, when he was talking to Mary. And even on the cross, taking care of his mother in the last few moments of his life. But we're not going to go there this morning. (laughs) Today's study does, however, relate to something motherly, at least in my life growing up. My dad was the, hand, the heavy-handed disciplinarian. He was the one that I'd hear coming down the hallway with the belt cracking. You know, he had that little thing. I think I've shared with you before. It still makes me shudder. You know, take off the belt and do that snapping sound. Oh. You know, the discipline's coming. But my mom was the one who always caught me. It was unfailing. She was always there at the wrong time, at least for me. Now, I've heard some of you parents pray the prayer that you're children would be caught in everything they do wrong. Some of you children, some of you teenagers, you're real bummed out about that prayer because you find it comes true all the time. I was one of these kids. Two times that really stand out in my mind, one, I was coming home from elementary school, flying high on my bicycle, all my friends are around, and so of course I had to do a wheelie off the curb right into oncoming traffic. I mean, that was cool. Well, it just so happens the oncoming traffic was a yellow Vista Cruiser station wagon driven by my mother unbelievable and of course I explained to her that was the only time I had ever done that I had never done that before. You just happened to catch me the one time. She's like, yeah, right. And of course, my bike was quickly put into the back of the Mr. Cruiser, and home we went, my head hung in shame. What's funny is that it wasn't just on a bicycle that this happened. It was also in the car. I was 16 years old, driving home from a basketball game on a rainy night. We had won the game. It was a great evening. I was pumped up. My friends were pumped up. I had three or four or nine of them in the car with me. <laughs> as the rain was coming down, I began to do donuts in the street. Not a good idea. This is why they come out with books like Crash Proof Your Children. So we're spinning around in the street laughing, having a great time, slamming on the brakes, the water's going everywhere, and we stop, and all of a sudden, it's that yellow Vista Cruiser. No, not again. She caught me twice. Now she was livid. My mom was so upset that night, my dad was cracking up. We got into the house and she just slammed the door and went right up the stairs. And you know, I think the last thing she said was, deal with your son, you know. And my dad comes in. And he's standing in the, in the entryway of the house, and he's just going. He's got that quizzical look on his face, and I had a bright moment there. I realized I wasn't going to die. Dad understood. He knocked me on the back of the head and said, "Don't do that again." Was it fun?
1: <laughs> but you know
0: what? I realized over the years, my mother disciplined me because she loved me so much, and that's the way it is with the Lord. Hebrews twelve six tells us, "For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines." Now last week we wandered into this topic of discipline somewhat unexpectedly. And, and I say that with all integrity. As we go week to week studying through the scriptures, I don't know what the topic's going to be until I open up that chapter and say, Okay, Lord, what is it for this week? And so last week we got into church discipline. We've never really talked about that before at the bridge. The wonderful thing about this through the Bible study kind of program pattern that we're taking here is that God sets the agenda and we don't. And I love that. I get to stand up and teach and talk about things that may or may not have any you know, immediate impact. Well, actually, amazingly, it does because the Spirit is at work and not me. I'm not trying to figure out what's going on in this fellowship so that I can speak to it. This church needs discipline, so we need a series on church discipline. No? And if some of you asked last week, is there something going on? No, nothing's going on. It just so happens the Lord wants to talk about church discipline, I think, beforehand. So that if ever there is a time needed in this fellowship, we know. We understand. His timing is perfect. His agenda is wonderful. He sets the issues and not us. But we're going to continue and talk a little bit more about this this morning because I think it's so important and it falls right in line with where we're studying. Discipline in the family of God. Last week we looked at the family of Israel. We've seen God's discipline throughout their 40 year wandering in the wilderness, throughout our studies in the book of Numbers. Most recently, God's discipline, His punishment at Peor, Numbers 25. You recall when Phineas took up his spear to finally check a plague that cost Israel 24,000 people. Phineas's response, his actions were decisive, were disciplinary, were tough. But tough times call for tough measures. And so the family of Israel was disciplined constantly. That's why they were taken back into the wilderness for discipline's sake. And discipline gang leads to dependency And that's what the Lord wants from His people. People who are dependent on Him, trusting in Him, looking toward Him for their lives. His discipline is always right, always perfect, always righteous. And we see that in the family of Israel, but we also talked about discipline in the family of the church. Two scriptures we read last week, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. Paul writes, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church. Now, there's something to think about. Paul says, don't you judge those who are in the church? We love to throw out the verse, judge not that you not be judged, and yet Paul says, no, there is judgment that happens within the church. We do judge where we're going. By the scriptures, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, there is judgment that we might walk in the right direction, the direction God calls us to. 1 Corinthians 5.13, he says, but those who are outside, God judges and then he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Dealing with a man who had taken his father's wife, an adulterous act that was pretty hideous. And Paul said, take him out. Well, not physically, he just said he needs to be outside of the church. In other words, when he shows up on a Sunday morning, when he shows up to worship with the body, you say, I'm sorry. But until you're in that place where you're ready to repent, where you're ready to turn around for the Lord, you can't be here. <laughs> And that's truly what we mean by church discipline. is someone who's living in a state of unrepentant sin. Saying, look, I don't want to do it your way or God's way or the way the Bible says. I'm living my life my way. And if I want to be in the middle of an adulterous affair, that's my business. It's not the church's business. Well, that's all well and good, except that it is the church's business and it's happening within the body of Christ. And it's unhealthy for the church to allow that just to go on. And so Paul says you remove that person from yourself, from among your midst. It protects, it disciplines the person. It also protects the body against things going on that shouldn't be going on. I just heard this last week of yet another church somewhere in the local area. tried to be a little bit vague here. Where one of the worship leaders is living with his girlfriend. And it's okay. Now to me there's a problem. And part of the problem is because I was talking to a person who attends that church and this person was, was having a rough time. Was confused by it. Didn't know what to do with it. Well now you've got a problem that's affecting people in the body not just the person who thinks it's only about them. Remember we said before no one sins in a vacuum. It's hard to get inside a vacuum anyway. But no one sins in and of themselves. It's not just about you gang. We're connected as a family as a fellowship in Christ. Our Love for each other goes beyond whether or not everything comes to Dory. Man, if you're having a hard time in your life, it should affect me. And if there's sin in your life, it is going to affect me. If there's sin in my life, it will affect you. And so Paul says, you remove that person. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, he goes on, verses 6 through 8, actually, he says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. He says, now you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We now urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So now Paul's turned around, and and months later or so, he's sending back a second letter. And he says, by the way, the guy that I told you to remove, bring him back now. It's been hard enough. Apparently, this man was brought to his knees in repentance. And Paul said, as a church fellowship, you have a responsibility. Yes, you discipline, but then you you restore. You restore. And that's a part that we often miss in the church, isn't it? When a church is bold enough to discipline, they have trouble with the restoration aspect of it. The person walks back in the church, and the church has a tendency to look down the nose at the person as if we were sinless ourselves. The Father's heart, the Father's heart is always about restoration. Always, That's what He wants for us. And it doesn't matter how heinous or awful or horrible, you might think the sin in your life is, God wants to restore you to His body, to His family. He wants you in His arms. That's the way God works. Now, mark this, my friends. In the case of unrepentant sin, the idea of disfellowshipping is not just to get them out of our hair. It's for the purpose of repentance leading to restoration. So that, both the individual and the church, can grow together. Now, when Phineas took his spear into the tent of rebellion, in Numbers 25, he did so for the sake of God and the congregation. Remember, his actions stayed the plague so that the entire congregation, the whole family of Israel, was saved. You may also remember that that his actions affected both a man and a woman. And so there is no uh, distinction between male and female in the fellowship of God. In fact, there is, no, there is not male or female. All or one in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Galatians. But discipline in the family of God is necessary. This morning, I'd like to take it a step further. I'd like to move from discipline in the family of God to discipline in our personal lives. Our own discipline. Back in Numbers 27, verse 12. we back there. The Lord takes Moses up on this mountain. And he tells him to look at all the land of Israel, which he has given to the sons of Israel. And then he says, when you've seen it, you'll you'll be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was. In other words, you're going to die, Moses. You're not going into the promised land. You're not going to the place that for the last 80 years you have been set toward leading the people. It's not going to happen. You're not going in. Why? Why is Moses going to die instead of receiving the promise of the promised land? Because as Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This Moses, this deliverer of the people, the prophet to whom God spoke face to face, the leader of millions out of slavery, and, and turning them into this glorious host, taking them to the, to the border of a glorious national heritage, this man, Moses, is going to die because he, like every other man who's walked on the face of the earth, sinned against God. And the wages of sin is death. You can read about Moses' sin in Numbers chapter 20. But what's interesting here is though there is still punishment, there is still discipline for Moses' sin, there's a wonderful moment of grace between Moses and the Lord. I'm not going to read it right now, but you can read about it. Deuteronomy 34. Verses one through four tell about God taking Moses up onto Mount Abarim, Mount Pisgah, Mount Nebo, up on that high peak, and He says, "I want you to look over the whole land that I'm giving the country of Israel." Now, listen to this; it's amazing. He says, and it's described in Deuteronomy 34, that Moses from that point was given by God a vision of the entire land. It describes places that could not be seen from that point. In other words, God gave Moses a supernatural vision. Allowed him to see beyond his physical limitations. That Moses, before he died, might experience or at least have a sense of the entire wonderful land that God was giving his people. Moses, you brought them to this point. I can't let you go in. You need the discipline. But what I can do, what I will do, is I'm going to show you. I'm going to let you see with your own eyes every inch of the land. And so Moses got to see that in this wonderful supernatural vision of the land. But even for the splendor of this vision, the principle of God's discipline is clear. And listen to this. Disobedience game denies us entry into the place of spiritual possession. Moses could not go in because of his disobedience. And the impact is the same for us today. Disobedience denies us entry into the place of A spiritual possession. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Listen, this is the reason we're made. Teenagers, understand something? Every single one of you, and this goes actually to everybody in here, every one of us were created specifically on purpose. None of us are afterthoughts by the Lord. Every one of us are gifted and made in such a way that God can use us in amazing ways. We were prepared, Paul says, beforehand for good works. We were prepared so that we could walk in what God has for us. And the only reason we don't do that is disobedience. The only reason we don't experience everything God has planned out for us in our lives is because we say, no Lord, we don't want to go that way, we want to go this way. And it's our own disobedience that denies us possession of the promises. It denies us our own offering of spiritual gifts. Why do other people have more spiritual gifts than me? Is there somewhere in your life, maybe, that you're walking in disobedience, denying yourself opportunity to receive from the Lord? Now you might say, Hey, I'm just not one of those gifted people. I'm just me. Well, just you... God doesn't make superfluous saints. You know what superfluous means? You know in Father of the Bride, the first movie, when Steve Martin is removing the superfluous buns from the wrapper because there's too many? God doesn't make too many. God doesn't overdo. God didn't just have some extra clay available and make a few of you. The Lord specifically made each of us. He doesn't make excess evangelicals. Now we have enough people in the church for the day. No. There's no such thing as the redundant redeemed. The Father makes all of us for a purpose. But what happens, as we discussed last week, is our hearts, our hearts get clogged with carnality. And so we end up denying ourselves the gifts and blessings the Lord has prepared for us to walk in. And so decisive surgery is needed. The sphere of Phineas is needed in my own life, in your own life. God needs to discipline. This is why Moses was barred from the promised land. It was an act of discipline. But gang, listen, and this is wonderful, the discipline of Moses not entering the promised land was a temporary discipline. What are you talking about, Rick? He died, so how could he possibly go in? I think some of you know what I'm talking about. Matthew 17, Mark chapter 9, on the mountain of transfiguration, Elijah was there, Jesus was there, and Moses was there. Because God had something better planned for Moses. Something future planned for Moses to actually be there, present in the promised land. Oh, there's another time. I believe personally when Moses will be in Jerusalem. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 11. Two witnesses are there. And it's most certainly Moses... One of those. God had something better for Moses. Something future. Something prepared and planned for Moses. But he needed to be disciplined for the disobedience. And so in the short term, he died. But in the long term, in the long term, God had great plans for his son Moses. Now I want to talk more about this. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning in in that chapter. Hebrews chapter 12. And I again invite you to consider yourself. This is one of those studies, and, and last week I think was too, where it's so easy to get our focus on other people's. To get a focus off ourselves and think about those maybe in our own family, our friends, loved ones, those sitting in our particular row, who we know really need to hear this, and boy, we hope they're listening. Well, boy, I hope you're listening this morning. I have been. Verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 12. Paul says, and I believe Paul's the writer of Hebrews. I know that's that's debated among scholars, but I think it's pretty obvious. So in my simple mind, we're just going to go with Paul. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. Paul says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have not forgotten... Or have you, yeah, you, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as, as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord disciplines, or the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. I'm going to give you a few things to jot down if you're a note taker. You might want to write these down just about discipline as we walk through this chapter. Number one, God's discipline is punitive. No, no, it's not punitive, it's corrective. Let's be clear. God's discipline is not punitive, it's corrective. What does that mean? It means simply God does not punish for punishment's sake alone. Some of you parents know what I mean. The child is out of control and they go running by you and just for the sake of feeling good, you give them a good swat on the way out the door. And it wasn't for them. Oh, it was for you. I'm speaking of myself here. It felt good.
1: Bang! <sighs>
0: and that's punishment for punishment's sake. That's punitive discipline. It's not corrected. When the child turns around and says, What are you paying me for? And you go, oh, It just felt good.
1: Where my heart was, man,
0: it was just the right thing to do for the moment. You go play. <laughs> God doesn't do that. The point of godly discipline, and young parents especially, pay attention to this. God's discipline is always about correction. It's about redirection. It's to straighten out the direction we're going. It's to correct our lives that we might stay on track. Now, please understand in the context of this, I know I say this all the time, but remember that you are saved by grace, and by grace alone. It is the grace of the Father through Jesus' death on the cross that saves any person. And no amount of being a disciplined person, an obedient person, is going to gain you more salvation. Once you have it, you have it. But listen, God still would that we all are directed in the right path in the way we live our lives. He still wants us to grow in righteousness, to develop a deeper faith. And so the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And it's not punitive, it's corrective. Now what's interesting to me is the Hebrew writer, again Paul I believe, quotes directly from Proverbs here. It's Proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12. Now I want you just to look at verses 5 and 6. And listen while I read Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 and watch how it matches up. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. It's different, isn't it? Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, changes something in this translation, in in his writing, in Hebrews chapter 12. He says in verse 6, Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Not correct. And it's not a parallel word, it's a different word. It is a more serious word in Hebrews chapter 12. He scourges every son He receives. It's a little more intense than corrects. If you know what scourging is, it has to do with flogging, which is painful. But there's good reason for this word. The word is used in another place. The story is told in John chapter 2 of Jesus coming into the temple. Now this, by the way, and this is important to note, is at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus in John chapter 2, and John tells us this, comes into the temple and makes for himself... A scourge of cords. Referring to the same word. He makes a scourge of cords. Why? What's he doing? What's he angry about? Because he comes into the temple and he is hot. He is upset. See, the deal is that in John 2, people are coming from all over Israel to the Passover. They're all showing up for this wonderful feast, this celebration. A lot of the people in Israel, very poor, and bringing what they have in the way of an oxen or sheep or doves for offerings... But the priests in the temple were making millions by telling these people who came from the outer areas, as they came in, oh, I'm sorry, your oxen aren't good enough. There's a flaw right there behind the left ear. Where is it? I don't see it. Well, it's there, so you're going to have to buy one of ours. Oh, I'm sorry, your doves are are just not quite clean enough. You need to buy one of ours. Your sheep? No, that, that that sheep's not going to work. You need to buy one of ours. And they set up an entire little little area there where they were selling oxen and sheep and doves. In fact, it was in what was called the court of the Gentiles, in the outer area of the temple, which is significant because that's the area where Gentiles could see exactly what was going on. All of this, these priests. We're ripping the people off, turning it into turning the temple into an open air market for gouging these vacationing Israelites. And this is the scene that Jesus comes into, and this is the scene that absolutely infuriates him at the beginning, the beginning of his public ministry. John 2:15 says, Jesus made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away stop making my father's house a place of business gang the church is not a business it's a family it is a different organism than anything in the world and the Israelites at least the priests were trying to turn God's precious Passover celebration into a way to make money a way to make a business happen and Jesus was furious And it tells us his disciples there, remember what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's godly discipline. Scourging. Jesus, when they're in there, cracking the whip, overturning the tables, disciplining, redirecting the people. This house will be a holy place. This house will be a place of worship, not a place of making money. And so he disciplines, he redirects the people. You can call it a spring cleaning. That's what Jesus was about. He was cleaning out the house of the Lord. Now, I've made the point that this was at the beginning of his public ministry. That's where John puts this story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end of his public ministry. Now, some would grab a scripture and go, Oh, well, you see, contradiction. Obviously, the Bible's incorrect. Obviously, you haven't read it. (laughs) you're going to say that. The reality is, gang, and I absolutely believe this, that the scourging of the temple, the discipline that Jesus brought about, happened at the beginning and at the end of his public ministry. He did it once. He did it a second time. It's fascinating to me that it would happen that way, that John would give us this insight of a cleansing beginning his public ministry, and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us at the end it happened as well, because Jesus' entire ministry is framed by cleaning out the temple. Interesting. Like holy bookmarks. The temple must be cleaned. And he starts his ministry. And he ends it saying the temple must be clean." What temple? Your temple. My temple. God wants our temples to be clean. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God. And that you are not your own. I talked recently with, with a, a, a teenager who is right now... ...taking a break in a relationship that this person is in. And the other teenager is as well. I guess if one's taking a break, the other one's taking a break. (laughs) But you know what the reason is? This absolutely blows my mind. Because it's not typical of teenagers today. The reason they're taking a break is for the sake of purity. To say we're not going to make our bodies a place of money changers. We need to remain pure and so for a season we need to not be together... That is amazing. It's wonderful. And God will honor that and He will bless them for it. we live in such a twisted world when it comes to our bodies, especially among our adolescents. And I know kids, teenagers, i am talking to you a lot today, but it is not the coolest thing to be among those who have lost their virginity. It is the best. It's the most awesome. It's the most powerful thing to be a person of purity. Of purity. Man, if the Holy Spirit is in you, your body is not your own. So so going on, God's discipline is never punitive. It's corrective. He disciplines those whom He loves. He disciplines for the sake of bringing people back in line with His righteousness. Because, gang, that's a better place to live. It's a sweeter place to live. Verse 7, Hebrews chapter 12. Going on, says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you, and you might want to underline this, as with Sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which we have all become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons the word illegitimate here is notos in the greek it means of uncertain birth or affinity you don't know where you come from you don't know where your, your heritage is you don't know even who your parents or one parent is it's uncertain heritage illegitimate well god's discipline number 2 in your notes is not illegitimate it's legitimate it's not illegitimate, that is for illegitimate sons, but it is for those who are legitimate children. His discipline is for His children. John 1.12, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not out of blood, or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God doesn't discipline, listen, He doesn't discipline the, uh, the illegitimate child. He judges them. That's an interesting distinction that you might want to note. He disciplines those in the body, those in the church, those in the fellowship. He disciplines. Those outside of church who have not received Jesus, who have not received sonship, who are not his children, he judges. You can be disciplined or you can be judged. I prefer discipline myself because at the end of discipline is always open arms. As the end of discipline is always love and affection and, again, restoration. First Corinthians 5.13 says, But those who are outside, God judges. But those who are inside the family, legitimate heirs of the kingdom through Jesus Christ, are not judged. We are disciplined. Now you might ask the question, Well, Rick, how do I know if I'm a legitimate child of God? Two very simple ways. The first way to know that you're a legitimate child of God is that God chose to scourge His own Son in your place. The discipline of scourging. God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. And so the first way you know you're a child of God It's because Jesus died for you. Jesus took the punishment. He took literally the judgment that you and I deserve on the cross at Calvary that we might not have to deal with that kind of scourging. But secondly, and it's a way to understand and to know that you're a child of God that maybe we have missed, but God chooses to discipline you as a son or a daughter because he loves you too much to leave you where you are. How do I know I'm a child of God? One, Jesus died for you. Two, He disciplines you. And if you're going through a rough spot in your life, or you're finding yourself just struggling with the Lord, guess what? He loves you. (laughs) It's great news. If you're being disciplined and you're in those difficult places, it's because the Lord loves you too much to leave you where you are. C.S. Lewis always talked about the dentist. And the fact that he would never tell his mother that he had a toothache when he was a child because he knew it meant he had to go to the dentist and it wasn't getting that tooth fixed that bothered him so much it was the fact that the dentist would find other problems in his mouth as well give a dentist an inch and he takes a tooth you know that's what Lewis said and God does the same thing with us if we take our life to him yes he's going to find the thing that we know is wrong but he's probably going to find other stuff as well and he's going to deal with that give God an inch he'll take a soul because he loves you too much to leave you where you are and you are not illegitimate children. Number three. Number three, God's discipline is not superficial. It's spiritual. Look at verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, that is our earthly fathers, but he disciplines us for our good So that we may share his holiness. Now, let me point out a couple things in these two verses. First of all, in verse 10, if you notice in the New American Standard Bible, words are italicized every now and then. The italicized word is added and is not in the original translation, it's not in the original language. So a lot of times when I read the verse, I like to just toss out the italicized word and just read and see what it sounds like. Listen to it the way it was written. They, our earthly fathers, in verse 10, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he for good. So that we may share his holiness. He for good. God disciplines us for good. In other words, eternally, forever. It's it's a permanent thing in comparison to our earthly fathers. Now verse 9 is interesting because it gives a contrast that might be a little bit difficult to see here. That phrase, earthly fathers, is literally the fathers of our flesh. The fathers of our flesh. Whereas the phrase at the end, the father of spirits, is, is absolutely correct. So he's got a great contrast here. Paul says, listen, you've been disciplined by the fathers of your flesh. Your earthly fathers. Now, wouldn't it be much better to be disciplined by the Father of your spirit? Because the discipline I received from my earthly dad, you know, it affected me for a time, it affects my earthly life, but guess what? It's not unto eternity, but the Father of my spirit, which is eternal, that discipline is an eternal discipline. It's not just for a better life that God disciplines me. It's for eternal life. It's to deepen my faith, to strengthen my trust, widen my compassion, purify my heart. Why would God do that? Because listen, history, gang, is a tragic but wonderful romance. The entire history of mankind. It's the story in which the beloved has spurned the affection of the lover. But the lover keeps wooing us back to the garden, calling us back to be with him, that we might walk with him in holiness and in purity. That's what God wants, to be the father with his children gathered around him in that perfect place. Us enjoying fellowship with the father, him enjoying intimacy with his children, this is what he desires. And the spiritual gain affects the physical and vice versa. It's in the flesh that we're being molded and trained for life forever in the spirit. I want you to flip quickly. Keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 12 and turn over to Galatians chapter 5. And what I hope is becoming a familiar passage to you, Galatians chapter 5. Paul again gives us a stunning contrast. You could contrast it... Between the flesh, the fathers of the flesh, and the Father of our spirits, Paul contrasts superficial flesh and eternal fruit. Listen to verse. Let me begin in verse 18. Paul says, "If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law." But then he says, and mark this, note this: the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the flesh. Now, it's amazing because in this list that Paul gives us, there are things in that list that have nothing to do with me. Sorcery? Not a problem. Feel pretty good about that one. Got the sorcery thing taken care of in my life. Not worried about that so much. Immorality, which specifically speaks of sexual immorality. I have a great relationship with my wife. Never stepped outside of that in our marriage. Good for me. Hallelujah. Way to go, Rick. Strife jealousy
1: Outbursts of anger
0: and he goes on how do you know how do you know if someone's walking with the Lord or if they're not I'll tell you what we got the list right here how do you know if you personally are walking outside of the Father's will strife envying factions dissension disputes outbursts of anger jealousy these are all things of the flesh these are all things that do not speak of the Spirit of God at work in our lives. But, but listen, how do you know someone's walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I use this list, by the way. In my own life, and personally, I use this list to see where people are coming from. As I talk with people or, or deal with people or, or counsel people to understand where a person's heart is. Man, if I can see the love there, there's peace, joy, and patience and gentleness and kindness. Man, if these things are flowing out, I know the spirit is working in that life. But if it's the other list, not so much. The flesh and the spirit, then God's discipline is not superficial, it's spiritual, and we have a choice. We can be subject to the flesh or we can be subject to the Spirit. And what Paul says is, back in Hebrews chapter 12, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits? Who here would rather live in strife as opposed to gentleness? I think I'd pick gentleness. Outbursts of anger. Or peace. I think I would like peace. Even if that outburst of anger seems for the moment to be a release, you know what's followed. Immediately, outbursts of anger followed by shame and guilt over the fact that you outbursted. I'm not sure if that's a word. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 12. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Number four, God's discipline is short-term sorrowful, long-term peaceful. It may be hard for a short time, but again, personally and again, as well as corporately, the discipline of the Father is for the purpose of leading us to repentance that yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I've shared this with some of you before, but I said earlier that my dad's punishment, he wasn't the more heavy-handed, he, he was the, the butt-stop there, or the belt-stop there, whichever you choose. And what always happened with my dad, and I learned from this, the spanking came first, but after the spanking always came, always came comfort. Dad would tell me why he was going to spank. He's a very cool man, still is, just very even. There were times when I was a teenager I was like, Dad, why don't you just get mad and yell at me? Because I'm not going to, son.
1: Ah! You know? (laughs) And he
0: would sit me down and say, Rick, here's why. You need a spanking. You know? And I I would keep hoping that he'd look the other way so I could quickly stick a book down in my pants to (laughs) protect me. He'd explain it. And then the spanking would happen. And the tears would come. And immediately... My Father's arms would surround me and draw me up into his lap. And he held me until the tears stopped. Now from a non-godly perspective, that's weird. That's just strange. Why would you inflict harm and then turn around and offer healing? Because that's what the Lord does. That's how God works in our lives. He will punish. He will inflict harm. But then turn around and offer comfort. 2 Corinthians 7.9, Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret that leads to salvation. But listen to this. The sorrow of the world produces... Produces death. We have a word for worldly sorrow in our culture. The word is depression. Depression, gang, is worldly sorrow. It's not godly sorrow. Now, you might say, well, I struggle with depression. I assume that many of you have or do. Depression is a major issue in our country, especially according to the National Institute of Mental Health. 20.9 million Americans suffer from some sort of depression. That would be one out of six people. One out of six people in this country are depressed. And I submit to you that depression is worldly sorrow because all depression does is wheel us down all the way down to worse and worse thinking when a person is depressed we think about all the bad things and we get on this downward spiral that you cannot that is very difficult to get off of and that is worldly sorrow that is sorrow that the devil is trying to you know impress on you and we sit under this heavy weight of this worldly sorrow one in six people depressed in the world But Paul says God's God's sorrow, godly sorrow, doesn't produce that. When our eyes are turned to the Father, when we're accepting the discipline of the Lord, it's not for the purpose of taking us down that spiral to a bad place. It's for opening up our eyes and it's for Him opening up His arms and drawing us into His lap where He can heal us and love us. In that place where there's comfort. Which is why Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. One more thing, verse 12. Therefore, the writer says, Strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. God's discipline is not harmful. It's healing. It's healing. That's the ultimate point of godly discipline, both in the family of God and in the individual, is renewal, healing, restoration, rebirth. And by the way, speaking of rebirth and renewal, and this is fascinating to me, Moses, back in Numbers 27, you might want to flip back there, Moses spoke to the Lord and responded to this news of his punishment, of his impending death. And he didn't say, oh, Lord, please, give me a second chance. I know I blew it there, but it's not fair. It was just one outburst. It was just one moment, and for that, I can't go into the promised land. Come on, God, give me a second chance. That's not what Moses said. Amazingly, verse 15 of Numbers 27, it says, Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. He doesn't care about himself. He says, A man who will go out and come in before them. A man who will lead them out and bring them in. So that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. That's the heart of a shepherd. The heart of Moses here is beautiful. In fact, that's the heart of Jesus. Who in Matthew 9.36, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 6.34 says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Moses, like Jesus, was more concerned with the people that he was with himself and with the discipline that he knew he had to endure. He had no argument with the Lord whatsoever about being disciplined such that he would not enter the promised land. Why? Why didn't even Moses raise the issue even one time? Was he just a philanthropist that didn't care about himself? Was he just this, this amazing guy who was willing to be a martyr for the cause? Hang it goes so much deeper than that. Moses. Moses had an eternal perspective. Moses knew he had a future that was not limited to Israel. How do you know that, Rick? Because Paul tells us back in Hebrews 11. I'll just read this to you and we're done this morning. Hebrews 11.13 says, Speaking of all these amazing people, Moses included, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews 11.16, he says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Down in Hebrews 11.39, it reads, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect Moses was able to accept God's discipline because he desired God's presence which is a better land he's up there on top of Mount Nebo he's looking out over the entire promised land supernaturally he can see it all and yet Moses' content was in that he would be with the Father he was going to die yes, discipline but guess what? He was going to be with the Lord, which is God's grace and restoration. And gang, that's the deal for us as God's children. We are being disciplined for a better land. Have you in your life found yourself in the midst of a sin and suddenly things start going bad for you? You're being disciplined for it. And it may be sorrowful, and it may be difficult, and it may be a struggle for you, but understand this, that very discipline that you experience is the Lord saying, I just love you so much, I don't want anything to stand between us. I want you here on my lap my great big arms around you I want you walking a path that draws you nearer and nearer and nearer to me and Paul says momentary light affliction all of these things are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal we are being disciplined for a better place.